0: So Jesus Jesus has told his disciples numerous times by this point that he's about to die. Every time time there's a reference to to Christ's hour or to his glorification, what he's referring to is his coming death. And this is obviously disturbing to the disciples. He he knows it and they know it. It's why why in verse 6 Jesus draws attention particularly to their grief. In verse 6 he says, rather you are filled with grief because I have said these things. And that grief makes sense. The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. Their possessions, their families, their jobs. All to follow this man claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. And now this man is telling them that he's going to die. He's going to leave them. Consider how the people of God have lived throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Nothing is more important than God's presence. If God is with you, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You can can make it through it. And so, for example, let's think about the Garden of Eden. God was with Adam and Eve, and when they sinned, a certain relationship with God was severed. God was still present, but distant. When God freed the people from slavery to Egypt, he wandered with them in the Ark of the Covenant. During the time of the monarchy, Solomon built the temple where God would reside, where where the worship of the people would center, and then the temple was destroyed. And the prophets, especially Ezekiel, asked. They, they, they wondered, where is God now? How will we be God's people if God is not in our midst? And that question isn't really definitively answered until the coming of Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, the divine presence, eating, drinking, and walking around with other human beings. Now from the outside looking in, it, it might appear that this is as good as it gets. The divine presence walking around with you, walking around alongside you where you can see, you can see God and touch him. But Jesus doesn't think that that's as good as it gets. And that's what sets up verses 7 to 15. In verse 7, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Very simply, Jesus is telling his disciples that the incarnation is not the final act of God getting closer to his people. Taking on human flesh is not the most intimate way that God can interact with his people. No, the age is yet to come, and it's going to require Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension in order to get to that. But what is that? What is that age? We refer to that age as the age of the spirit a time when God is not just going to walk alongside his people but rather is going to take up residence inside his people. This is an intimacy that's unlike anything that the Hebrew Bible anything that we see in the Hebrew Bible. No longer do we need to go to a particular place to have an encounter with the God who created us. Instead, through faith in Christ, that very God, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. See, one of the the disadvantages of the incarnation is that the Son of God in taking on flesh will only be in one place at one time. After he ascends and sends the Spirit, I can have as much of the Spirit as you can. God can dwell in each and every one of us. And that's all all well and good. But, But one of the things that I think we really need to spend time thinking about is what it is that this Holy Spirit does. And so the Spirit does three things. The Spirit advocates, the Spirit educates, and the Spirit elevates. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, the Spirit advocates, the Spirit Spirit educates, educates. and the Spirit elevates. elevates. Verse 8 is about the Spirit's advocacy. In the the cosmic courtroom, the Spirit proves the current world order wrong on three major counts. Sin, sin, and judgment. Something I want, to, I want to talk about the sin part first. Something, something that has to always be at the center of our preaching is that sin, at its core, is a failure to believe in God. Your lust is a failure to believe that God can fulfill your needs. Our pride is a failure to believe that God is the only one worthy of praise. Our envy is a failure to believe that God has and will provide for you. But only the Holy Spirit can show us the ways in which our sin is actually a failure to believe. Because when we're, when we're left to ourselves, we'll constantly think that sin is merely a matter of disobeying particular rules. It is that. But the Spirit is calling us to a deeper relationship with the Lord. One that's focused not just on obeying discrete rules, which are important. Rules are very important. The rules exist. we got to follow them. Just so we're clear. But... The relationship that the Spirit is ushering us into with the Lord. The true, true life-giving union with Christ is a life of love and belief that God actually actually loves you and wants what's best for you. And so when we see the rules of Scripture, what, what we're being told is the way that the Lord wants us to live because he created us to live in that way. Now the Spirit also proves the current world order wrong about righteousness. In verse 10, Jesus says that the Spirit does this because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. That is, Jesus, t- Jesus spent his ministry telling the world that it was wrong about righteousness. And when he's not around, somebody still needs to do that work. Jesus told the religious leaders who thought that they were righteous that they weren't. He also, by his healing and by his generous invitation to the sinner, bore witness to the fact that the status quo was also unrighteous. Like the prophets before him, he was relentless in saying with his life that things are not as they ought to be. And we, by the Spirit, ought to be relentless in saying the same. But there's something important. While things are not as they ought to be, we also have to be relentless in saying that things will be as they ought to be. See, this is the the good news of the kingdom of God, that even in the midst of darkness, the light has shone through. In Christ, the kingdom has come and is coming. And in fact, if if we're to be communities truly guided by the Spirit, people should be able to see it, even here. People should be able to see communities of selflessness, communities of love, communities where people are constantly looking to the interests of others. Then we join with the Spirit in demonstrating the unrighteousness of the world. One of the things that I've been, that I've been really encouraged by, especially over the course of the last few weeks, have been folks, uh, and this is not to kind of toot Mosaic's horn or anything, but folks who came to Waco thinking that they were just going to kind of be here for a little while, and then they encounter a church community where they, where they where they where they where they where they experience the love the love of God and the and the, and, the, and, the and, and and the application of the scriptures into every area of their lives, and they realize this is something that I need in order to live. So so I'm not going to leave because this is so because this is so important that this is something that I'm willing to invest in. The, a kind of community where the spirit, where the spirit is present, where the spirit is actually shaping people, where the spirit is actually guiding people to actually obey the word. That's something to hold on to, and that's also how we bear witness to the world that the status quo is, un, is, is, is unrighteous. Well, lastly, the fun one: judgment. Verse eleven. Verse 11 says that the spirit will prove the world to be wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Brothers and sisters, I want us to remember the cosmic nature of our faith. We live in a world that is going to to attempt to tell you that the devil wins. You're going to see oppression around you. You're going to see the righteous suffer. You're going to see the innocent suffer. You're going to see the wicked prosper. You, You yourself are going to suffer things that you don't deserve. Medieval anchoress, Julian of Norwich, had something to say about that. She said this, God said not, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be travailed, thou shalt not be diseased. But he said, thou shalt not be overcome. In other words, there's no promise to you that you won't be beset by storms. There's no promise to you that you won't be tested. There's no promise to you that you won't be thrown off course by suffering. But you will not in Christ be defeated. Jesus wins. Not the devil, not the world, not your sin. And it's that truth that keeps us out of despair. But we need the Spirit to drive that truth deep into our bones. And he uses the Word to do it. He uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to do it. But that's what the the advocacy of the Spirit Looks like the spirit advocates but the spirit also educates verse 13 says when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is to come after Jesus leaves Christ's presence in the world is the Holy Spirit so the, so the apostles gave us the New Testament by the inspiration of this spirit and so when we look to the scriptures to discern our paths forward, to, to figure out how to experience real peace, how to, how to experience contentment, how to love our neighbors, what we're doing is we're asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, educate. And this is, this is, this is, this is my briefest point, but I, but, I, but I encourage you to lean into this particular work of the Spirit. Because, because God wants to guide you through your life. Especially into truth, it is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's something that God is eager to do by His Spirit. But this education can only take place if the Spirit has done the third task—that is, the Spirit elevates. Verse fourteen says, "The Spirit will glorify me, Christ, because it is from me that He will receive what He will make known to you." The Spirit's purpose is to point to Jesus Christ. And so how do you know if if, if the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something, or if some other spirit is leading you to do it? Well, the question you can ask is, does this elevate Christ? Does Jesus get more glory from me going to this place, or, or taking this job, or making this decision? If so, then it fits. If not, then it doesn't. But, but, but because, because, because what the Spirit does is the Spirit elevates our eyes to the Lord. But, even before that, the Spirit elevates you. What do I mean by that? Palestinian theologian, uh, Johanna Katzenacho, describes the Spirit thus. He says this, The Spirit is the mother that grants us our new kingdom identity, and enables us to see the kingdom, as well as to enter it. So this is a great summary of John 3, what it means to be born again, what it means to be born of the Spirit. In in, in referring to the Spirit as this this mother that gives birth to us, that gives us this new kingdom identity that allows us to not only see the kingdom, but also to enter it. What, 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 What we're saying is that for you to enjoy the advocacy of the Spirit, and for you to enjoy the education of the Spirit, you have to first experience the elevation of the Spirit. That is, you have to be reborn through faith in Christ and repentance from your sin. When you're in that mode, the comfort that's available to you is not not just the kind of comfort that you can just muster up from your own emotional effort. What we're talking about is the comfort that's available in the Spirit, a comfort of the covenant community, a comfort of a God who loves you, who died for you, and a comfort of a people who are gathered by and empowered by the Spirit. That's how we fend off despair. But this isn't all that Jesus tells his disciples in this chapter. After telling them what the Spirit will do, he says a little more about his death. And that's what all this business in verses 16 to 18 is about, where he he keeps saying things like, in a little while you'll see me no longer, and then after a little while you'll see me. What he's saying is that in a few days I'm going to die, I'll be dead for a few days, and then I'm going to come back. But in in, in these verses, he's, he's, he's also giving more reasons for his death, why he has to die. Because, brothers and sisters, perhaps one of the most important questions that we can ask is this. Why did Jesus die? And every theologian has some kind of answer to this question. But if we look closely at this text, Jesus gives his own answer in a few parts. First, verses 20 to 22, Jesus says, weep while the world rejoices. Now, by the world, John doesn't doesn't mean that the 11 are going to mourn while every other human being in the world celebrates the death of Christ. No, here here Cosmos is referring to the world order, the anti-kingdom, as John Sabrino calls it, sin, death, the devil, the principalities, and the rulers, because Jesus represents everything that the kingdoms of the world cannot stand. While while domination and exploitation are the norm of the kingdoms of this world, in Christ's kingdom, there is nothing but love, but self-sacrifice and mutual concern, things that sicken the enemy. And so as we're going to find in these coming chapters, a corrupt judicial system puts Jesus to death. And those systems are, even if for a moment, going to rejoice in Christ's death. The death of Christ is going to appear to them like a victory, even if only for a few days but it's not going to last long. There are three, there are three early church theologians, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, and John Damascene, who have this great image of the atonement, Christ's saving work. The image is what's called the fishhook analogy. It's one of my favorite pictures. Uh, John, John, John Damascene says it, says it this way, and I'll explain what he's, what he's, what he's talking about. He says, Wherefore death approaches... And swallowing up the body as a babe, Christ's body, is transfixed on the hook of divinity, and after tasting of a sinless and life-giving body, Christ's body, perishes, and brings up again all whom of old he swallowed up. For just as darkness disappears on the introduction of light, so is death repulsed before the assault of life, and brings life to all but death. To the destroyer. See, the image is that Satan and death are tricked into thinking that killing Christ is an easy thing. And so, like, like Jonah and the big fish, an analogy that Jesus already uses to describe his death, the fish of death swallows or attempts to swallow the Son of God. But what the fish doesn't know is that it can't digest eternity. And so, and so it spits him back up. And this is and this is a little bit gross, but 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 Gross metaphor stick in your mind up so it's great. Uh, so, so 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 you know when you when you when you when you when you eat when you eat meat that's gone bad or something that's gone something that goes bad that your stomach doesn't like, that when, when when you eat and that thing comes back up, that's not the only thing that comes back up. It, it brings other things with it. And and so also with Christ, when when, when death vomited him up, he took us with him image that we're talking about here. And so, and, 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 but there's another image that Jesus, that Jesus uses. It's, it's also, it also is kind of a little bit gruesome when you think about it, but, but it's the image, it's the image of a pregnant woman giving birth, which is like not a fun thing to look at. But anyway, it's, this, this is especially, like, like this especially close to, close to my heart because like Desiree is going to go through this again in a few months. There's, there's the pain of birth. But afterwards, as Jesus says, when when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. I mean, sometimes you forget that pain, sometimes it's you know it's seared into your brain. But but the reason, but the reason why, the reason why people forget that pain is because there are these massive doses of dopamine and oxytocin that flood your system when you see your baby for the first time. And they're so powerful that they swallow up the pain. And this is the kind of joy that Jesus is promising his disciples in the midst of what appears to be defeat. See, while they're they're afraid that they're going to lose their rabbi, and he doesn't tell them that they're not going to lose him. They are going to lose him, but only for a little while. Because the better news is that it's actually better for them that he dies because it's the only way that God can get even closer to them. After after Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus assures them in verses 23 and 24 about that day that's coming. He says, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I love, I love these verses one of the one of the primary issues with the prosperity gospel is that it tells you it tells you to claim things that God doesn't promise but but the but the, but, but the kingdom of god the kingdom ushered in by the incarnation death and resurrection of Christ it it does come with promises and it does come with promises that you can claim the promise of the spirit the promise of contentment the promise of joy the promise of But things that come in union with Christ. And these are all things that, according to Jesus, if you don't have them, it's because you don't have them because you have not asked. Because if there's one thing that Jesus wants to communicate with his disciples, is that he loves them. And, the, and, 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 and that the Father loves them because, because they believe in him. And that he is eager to pour these particular gifts out on. And when we are united to the eternal Son, we get the benefits of that relationship. And the greatest of those benefits is what our Lord describes in verse 33. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not you might. Not if you do things wrong, you're going to get, no. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Now what does that matter for you, dear brother or dear dear sister? What it means is that we have to drive deep into our hearts that truth that Jesus uttered millennia ago and Julian of Norwich uttered about 700 years ago, that God said not, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be travailed, thou shalt not be diseased, but he said, thou shalt not be overcome. John will tell us in 1 John 3.8, why did Jesus show up? Well, the reason, this is, in the, this, is, this is the second half of the verse, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He came to win. To use a basketball analogy, this is not, this is not a tied-up Game 7 of the, of the NBA Finals with the last shot in the air and we're all kind of biting our nails to find out what's going to happen. This is like Game 4 the Lord's team is up 3-0 in the series and winning the current game by 80 points with the ball and 25 seconds left on the clock. The game is in the bag. The series is in the bag. The new heavens and the new earth are coming, and there is nothing that our enemies can do to stop them. So, so how ought we live? Well, we have to take to heart Christ's command in verse 33: Take heart. Take courage. See, two of the most profound ways in which the enemy tries to wear us down are through despair and defeat. He wants us to think that there is no hope, and he wants us to think that ultimately we're going to lose. And Jesus will have none of that. Because our hope is found in the fact that he got up. Our victory is constantly testified to, not only by the resurrection, but by the power of the Spirit. So for example, when the the Spirit convicts you of sin and drives you to prayer, that's not a sign of defeat. That's a sign of victory. When you you actively submit your self-interest and act in the interest of others, especially of the poor, that's not defeat. That's victory. That's, That's fruit that will last. Those are the kinds of practices that the Holy Spirit will use to shape you into the image of Christ. And each of those actions is going to take courage. It's going to take you looking in the face of the systems of this world and saying, you don't determine what or who is valuable. God, and the world's not going to like you for it. Uh, so, you so, the, the, the 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 Palestinian scholar I referred to earlier, he, he writes about how in a Palestinian context, especially as a Christian, he's facing basically states, state-sponsored hate from, from, both, from both Jews and Muslims because he's caught in the middle of folks, folks who want a Jewish state and folks who want a Muslim state. And for, and for us, the hate that we may face may be from people who claim to want a Christian state. I saw, I saw on Twitter somebody asking, oh my gosh, Twitter, um, <laughs> asking how many people would be in favor of an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that recognizes the authority of the Bible over our current Constitution and all of our laws. And, and somebody else chimed in and said, yeah, like, Like Southern Presbyterian James Henry Thornwell, who, by the way, pro-slavery apologist guy, like this guy, this person really longs to see a truly Christian republic. Quite frankly, this is what the enemies of the kingdom of God look like. Folks who fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God. The modern nation state, whatever nation state it is, is a kingdom of the world. And we can't use the tools of the kingdoms of the world to force people into the faith. That's not how Jesus works. Although historically, this is the way that we've worked. Being founded as a a white male Christian settler colonialist empire. But that's the way that that, like, that's the way that a number of the governments of the world work, and this is not just me kind of going, this is what Jesus says in, 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 in Mark 10, when he's talking to James and John, What he says that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects, domination and exploitation are the name of the game everywhere, it's what everybody does and it's been our particular game for a while yes slavery, yes genocide but I think about the way that we treat Puerto Rico now Yes, it's July 4th tomorrow. Yes, throwing off imperial power is still a good thing. But the American Revolution can also be can also be likened to like Assyria conquering Babylon. Like it's it's empire against empire. And quite frankly, like I'm not concerned, I'm not concerned with 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 with, with affirming a particular empire. I'm, con- I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, especially as a pastor, I'm concerned with the kingdom of God concerned with with with, with training people to care not for a particular nation, but to care for the poor and the oppressed. That's that's what we as the church ought to be concerned about. But in the midst midst of, 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 of influence and other voices trying to tell us otherwise, to stay focused on that course is going to require courage. It's going to require courage to do the works of God, With the resources that he has given us, and only those resources. To make use of the spirit of God. Of the community of faith, of the the sacraments, of the word, of whatever social influence and resources that the Lord has given us. Because, Because that is precisely what Christ has called us to do. Why? Because he has overcome the world. He lived his perfect life. He obeyed the law, the the divine law, perfectly. He died a criminal's death for you and me. He was raised and he put his foot on the neck of the devil, destroying his works. And he sent his spirit to dwell in all those who are united to him by faith. What he has left to us, dear brother and dear sister, is to walk and to love in thy victory. So my prayer for us is that we go, not just in any old kind of peace, but that we go in the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.